I used to say mass in this uh, nursing home out in uh, Deer Park. It was uh, years ago now, probably about 20, over 20 years ago. Um, I was out at St. Cyril and Methodius Parish. And uh, yeah, there was this nursing home. And uh, once a week, we would uh, we'd go and we'd say mass on like a lounge on this uh, one of the floors of this home. And it turned out it was uh, that day was uh, the day I was usually on duty, which meant most of the time I went and said the mass. Um, they had this coffee shop in this nursing home that was kind of an amazing place. The, uh, the food was incredible. Like it was like a, yeah, it was just like these sandwiches they made. This was like, picture like the best diner you've ever been to. This was better than that. It just had like crazy huge sandwiches, these uh, ice cream sundaes that you, you couldn't believe. So when I discovered this coffee shop, I said, all right, I'm going to work that into my day at the nursing home. So what I would do is I'd go for mass, I'd say mass, and I'd go right before lunch, and then I'd go down and I'd, I'd grab the paper and I'd just I'd have one of these awesome lunches. Um, there was this woman, a mom, she had two kids with her, and she used to always be in the coffee shop when I was there, like pretty much every time probably like a, a four-year-old and a two-year-old, maybe. Very cute little kids. It's interesting, though. She was always in the, in the coffee shop, but she was never with anybody. Like, usually down there, you'd have family who were visiting a resident, and they'd go down to get something to eat. She, that was never the case. She was just there with her kids. And I remember wondering about that. Like, why is she here? I remember thinking at one point, like, could she just be coming for the food? Like, that's how good this place was, but that's crazy. You wouldn't go to a nursing home and just get lunch. Anyway, one day I was in there and she was there and we were right kind of, our tables were right near each other. So we started talking and I asked her eventually, I said, so like, why are you here? Well, who are you here for? I probably said. And her, her response was, I remember it, it was interesting. She said, well, I'm kind of here for, for nobody and for everybody, which kind of confused me even more. I'm like, what do you mean by that? And she said, well, I don't, I don't have a relative here. My, my mother or my, my grandfather, nobody, I don't know anybody here who's a resident. But she said, I come with these two. And she pointed to the kids. And she said, we just go in and we visit people. And she said, because those two just light these people up the kids. She said she brings them into a room and there's an elderly person and they're sort of like in a fog, barely awake, totally unfocused. And she said they just come to life. Their eyes light up. They kind of sit up. They engage these kids. They start to smile. They're talking to them. And she said it was like almost, not, probably not every, every person, but practically every person she encountered, she'd get some version of that she said the kids were great because they were completely uninhibited. Um, they'd be climbing on these people, and the older of the two would be kind of pushing the wheelchair around. Um, I was just thinking, like, what a great thing. 
She wasn't there for any one person. It wasn't like this obligation, I got to get there for my, my aunt or my whomever. And then this was the best part about it. She said to me, um, she said, the people who never get a visit, the people who never get visitors are the ones we visit. And that, I could tell, was like most important to her. Yeah, I mean, the kids were cute and all of that, but this was like, no, we're going to go in and we're going to visit people who just never get visitors. So much so that when she, I guess when she first started this, she reached out to the staff and she said, like, who on this floor pretty much gets no visitors? And sadly, there was always a list. So they'd, she'd get it, and that's where she'd go. She'd go into their rooms, or if they were sitting outside of their rooms in the hallway, she'd go and she'd stop and spend time with them. I mean, how cool was that? Eventually, she got a dog. She had this puppy that, once the puppy was old enough, she started bringing the dog, and they went even more crazy, loving, loving the dog and the, and the kids. These great visits. I was thinking of this kind of this notion, this concept of visiting people, important visits. We just heard about one in the gospel. It's called the visitation. Mary visits Elizabeth. Actually, right before this one, like the, the sentence before tonight's gospel, is the Annunciation, when the angel appears to Mary and says, you're pregnant, and I need you to, to raise this baby because the baby's from God, and this baby is going to just simply change the world. It's going to save the world. But he needs a mother, and God's picked you. And she says yes. She doesn't fully get it. It doesn't make sense. She was frightened and confused, but she says, okay. I mean, simple point there. Man, when God is behind something and we pretty much know it, we're pretty sure that, yeah, God wants me to do something, some decision, some choice, some direction, and I'm pretty sure, God, this is what God wants. We're crazy not to do it. Crazy. It's often scary. It's almost always difficult. But it's totally the way to go because God is behind it. God is never going to send us to a place that's a mistake, a place we shouldn't go. So if you can figure out what it is God wants, go for it. Say yes. Anyway, Mary does. And then you get this gospel. And the next line is, she went in haste to visit her cousin, who she has been just told is also pregnant. Equally crazy story. This woman, her cousin, was never able to have kids, and now she's way too old to have kids, and she's having a kid. So, like, more confusion. But it says, in haste, like, without delay, pretty much she ran to go visit her cousin. Which, by the way, you know, the the distance between where Mary was and Elizabeth was was about 80 miles. 80 miles, no Uber, no Amtrak, no Long Island Railroad, donkey. 
80 miles on a donkey, and you yourself are pregnant and alone. And she goes. I wonder why she went. Like, it ne- we're never really told. It just says, like, bam, she went. I mean, you can speculate. It's kind of fun to sometimes speculate. Things that we don't know for sure in the Gospels. Like, to, like imagine, maybe, maybe, maybe this is why it happened. Maybe that's, what, maybe that's what he or she meant. I don't know, maybe she was going to visit Elizabeth because Elizabeth needed somebody. She's pregnant and she's like an old lady. She was probably scared out of her head. Maybe she just needed help. Maybe she just needed the company. Or maybe it was reversed. Maybe Mary needed her. Maybe she was like Mary's go-to person. Maybe she was like this cousin, this aunt that she just totally respected. And when she had questions or uncertainty or doubt, she was the one she'd go to. So maybe that's why she went. We don't know why she went, but she went. And if you think about it, this much we do know. Mary brought Jesus. Mary brought Jesus with her. She's carrying Jesus. Elizabeth carrying John the Baptist knows it's the Messiah because of the reaction of her unborn child. All of these things are happening in utero. None of them are even born yet. And things are happening. Mary brings Jesus. You know, I was thinking about this, like, Mary was the first Eucharistic minister. <laughs> you know, what's a, what's a Eucharistic minister? They bring Jesus to people. They're not Jesus, but they bring Jesus in the sacrament. It is pretty much always to people if, who have kind of particular needs. They can't be here the way we are. We encounter Jesus tonight because we can come to him. But obviously there are people who can't. So we go to them. Maybe that's what was going on with Mary, this visit. I'm going to bring Jesus. She just instinctively, maybe she, she knew she just needs to be around my baby. Because he's the difference. He's the one who takes fear out of the room. I don't know how many of you saw about five or six years ago, I think maybe it was, uh, the movie Dunkirk. Uh, it's a pretty good movie. It's uh, a war movie. In fact, it's, I didn't realize this. It's, it was the highest grossing war movie ever, which I didn't realize it was that big, that popular. But it's a great story, a true story. Uh, 1940, France, World War II. It's before we're in it. But um, the Allied forces are very much in it, and they're losing. The Nazis have uh, invaded France, the Battle of France, and, and we're losing it. The Nazis are, are just gaining power, and they're just destroying the country. And uh, the Allied forces are kind of, the Allied forces were the, the British, the French, and the Belgians, and they, um, they're retreating because they're just getting crushed. So they retreat to the point where they really have nowhere else to go. They're not, they're, they've got their backs against the coast. And this little seaside town is called Dunkirk. And that's it. Like, the next stop is the water. 
The English Channel, 20-something miles away, is England. Hundreds of thousands of these Allied forces, and they're going to be destroyed. I mean, the German army is ferocious, and they're just, they're pouncing. They're, on, they're coming to at them. The concern, this was like potentially could have been the end of the war. Before we got in it, it could have been over. Churchill made this famous uh, kind of plea to the British people, and more or less said to them, to the civilians, he said, if you've got a boat, take it across the channel to rescue these stranded soldiers. I guess the deal with the uh, Dunkirk, the, the harbor was too shallow, so they just couldn't get big boats out of the harbor or into the harbor. So you have all of these stranded soldiers on the, on the shoreline. So the thought was if you can get boats in there, smaller boats, they'll get, go to the shore, get them, and then bring them to the bigger boats that are further out. And that's exactly what happened. Fishing boats, sailboats, just sort of like, you know, leisure party boats. Churchill was hoping at best that they'd get about maybe 25,000 rescued. 380,000 were rescued. Like this just remarkable rescue. This remarkable visit. There's a great scene in the movie. Um, the German, I mean, the, uh, the British officer. He's standing on this pier. Picture, it's almost like a, like a, well, it's a pier, like a jetty, but like pretty significant. And he's got this just look of hopelessness on his face. The camera is sort of looking right at him. Like, this is it's very bad. It's very dark. And you can see him. He then starts to look, like he squints a little bit, and he's looking out a little bit. For, he thinks he can see something in the distance. So he grabs a binoculars, and he looks, and in the distance, he begins to see these boats, like hundreds of boats coming from England to rescue these people. And the guy who gave him the binoculars says to him, uh, what are you looking at? And he just says, home. Like home is coming. Home is coming to the rescue. And that's all that's said in this scene. It goes on for like two and a half minutes, this scene, and there's no other dialogue. Like that's a, that's a long time to have no words spoken, but no words are needed because all you just see are these images of these boats coming and these soldiers cheering. Rescuers, visitors. I mentioned Deer Park. Before I was in Deer Park, I was in Huntington, St. Patrick's. We used to cover uh, uh, Huntington, Huntington Hospital. And I knew this guy from the parish who was a, uh, a Eucharistic minister. He had an interesting take on bringing Jesus to people. He only used to go to the hospital. He wouldn't, that's what he kind of said he'd like to do, which was great because a lot of times people don't, they're not comfortable doing that. So it was a great fit. Anyway, anyway, one day, he was probably at about 50, but he told me his story when he was about 20. He was struggling. He, was, uh, he said he had bipolar. 
And he didn't quite know it at that point, and it was just beginning to be manifested, and people just thought he was like losing his mind, and he obviously wasn't. He was a very solid guy, but he was coming apart. So he was uh, hospitalized a couple of times. In this one particular time, he spent about a week in the psych ward at Huntington Hospital. And he said it was the worst week of his life. He pretty much couldn't get visitors, or I guess if he could, it was, you know, it was incredibly limited. He was scared. He didn't know what was going or happening to him. He was blaming himself. Like the worst of everything. And he said one night, a Eucharistic minister showed up, knocked on the door of his room and said, hey, would you like to receive communion? And he said, I was 20. I wasn't even, I wasn't going to church. I mean, he knew what the Eucharist was, but it was, wasn't really important to him. And he said in that moment, he said yes. And he received. And this woman spent time with him. And he said he never looked back. I mean, it wasn't like overnight all of his problems disappeared. But almost in a moment, he began to realize how he was going to survive these problems. For the first time, he kind of invited Christ into this struggling life. And once he did it, things started to get better. The direction went right. Slow, but sure. So he became, years later, this guy now is like, you never would have known that this guy ever had any struggles at all. Now he was a Eucharistic minister. And he'd go to the hospital, and he'd go to the toughest places, sort of the saddest places of the hospital, like, I guess, the psych ward, certainly for some, and cancer wards, and pediatric units where you had desperate parents, places that were dark. And he shows up with Jesus, kind of like Mary, kind of like that mom with her two kids. She wasn't bringing, that mom wasn't bringing Jesus, but she was bringing God's children into the lives of these struggling old people. Seems to me it's just all about this visit thing. I remember getting this about a year ago. I got this text from a kid I used to know very well when I was chaplain, high school chaplain. And he's now in his 30s. And he came from a tough family. And I think that's why we got close, because, I don't know, maybe he just saw something in me that he didn't see in his father or... And he sent me this text. I hadn't talked to him in probably five years. And he told me that he had been in some pretty serious therapy. And he was really kind of healing after a lifetime of sort of struggling in terms of the relationship, family stuff. And he just said, hey, I wanted to thank you because you were there during those very tough time years. And I just want you to know that. It was like four sentences long. But I was so touched by it. Like, that was a visitation. You don't have to literally walk into the room, necessarily. Maybe it's a text. Maybe it's just seeing somebody 
out and about who just doesn't look right. Something in your gut says, you know, she's not doing well. He's having a, a bad day. And you just kind of, yeah, you reach out. That's a visitation. I mean, maybe it literally is. Yeah, I got, a, I got an aunt who's in a nursing home, and I, I ought to be seeing her more than I am. I'm not. So I got to go. Well, then go. Here's the question. Who's your Elizabeth? Let's for the moment say, like, we don't really know why Mary went, but let's say this is the reason. She just needed help. She needed a good person. She needed God. So who's your Elizabeth? What's your Elizabeth look like? Look out for Elizabeth. And then make the visit.